Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Andy Curran on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Anatomy of Blackness, Science and Slavery in the Age of the Enlightenment. We've dealt with the question of how racial categories and conceptions evolve on New Books in History before, most notably with an interview I did with Nell Irving Painter. She told us the history of whiteness. Today, with Andy's help, we'll return to the history of racial ideas and attempt to explain the history of blackness. Now, it's doubtless the case that people, and Europeans particularly, have noted that different people from different parts of the globe look different from one another. Now, this may not have been the first thing they noticed, but it was probably one of the things that they noticed. It was only recently, however, as Andy shows, that Europeans began to try to explain racial differences, and particularly differences in skin colors and morphology, in a way that we would call scientific. Of course, there are two reasons for this. One is that there was no science in the European context before the 16th and 17th centuries, and the second is that Europeans really didn't know very much about other parts of the world, so they didn't have an opportunity to encounter people of different races. It is interesting to note that what we call the scientific revolution and what we call the age of exploration run together. And it is in the confluence of these two historical streams that we see the origins of color-based racial discourse. Andy focuses on three groups of thinkers, ethnographers who wrote travel accounts, and Europeans wrote thousands of them, scientists, and these would include naturalists and more particularly anatomists, and finally Andy looks at the folks who were talking about slavery. They were interested in knowing how this ethnographic and scientific literature might bear on the question of the rightness or wrongness of slavery. It's a very interesting story. I really enjoyed talking to Andy today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Andy. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Very good. Very good. I should tell our listeners that we have Andy Curran on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Anatomy of Blackness, Science and Slavery in an Age of Enlightenment. We have talked about the history of racial categories and categorizations before on New Books in History, uh, most notably in an interview we did with Nell Irvin Painter a number of months ago, uh, and she explained to us the history of whiteness. And so Andy is going to return the favor in a way and tell us the history of blackness. I've read this book, and it is a fascinating story. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you go out and pick it up. And I'm really glad that Andy is with us today. Andy, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Uh, Gladly. Well, I grew up in upstate New York. My parents and my father abandoned Wall Street. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing to do these days. (laughs) It is. It is indeed. And uh, then I went to Hamilton College for my undergraduate and did my PhD at NYU with many years interspersed in France. I think I probably lived in France for seven or eight years at this point. And I've been teaching at Wesleyan for about 13 years now. Now I'm, uh, I've just begun a uh, stint as Dean of the Humanities, the Arts and Humanities here. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to write The Anatomy of Blackness. Why did you write this book? Well, it's, I guess a story would begin with my first project where I, I worked on human monstrosity and, and scientific academy debates during the 18th century. And I realized that pretty much everyone who had written on the question of monstrosity in the 18th century had a little paragraph or a chapter even on Africa and Africans. And I think it would be too easy to say that Africans were somehow monstrous in the 18th century. That's not what happened. But uh, given the fact that I was so interested in the life sciences and the history of the life sciences, I realized that my second project would inevitably uh, draw me to the question of Africa, particularly given the fact that I had this wonderful compost heap of things that didn't make it into the first book. At the same time, I was in doing my graduate work in NYU at that time, and it was a time of, of... real racial strife. It was the era of Rodney King. And there was a lot of tension in the classroom. And this is in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was fascinated by the, what the history of race and what effect it had on the way things were, the people were seeing each other in, in, the, you know, in the 1990s. And I wanted to think it back to an earlier time. Let's begin by talking about the book itself. One of the things that I noted was 
a kind of close attention to a source that I know really well. We talk a lot about sources on this show, and that is what I call um, these early modern ethnographies. I, I don't know if you know this, but my first book was about a set of early modern ethnographies of Russia, 16th and 17th century accounts. And so I was really glad to see them in your book. Can you explain a little bit what these sources were and how they came about? The early modern ethnography, proto-ethnography, I should maybe step back a little bit and, and say that when I was getting into this whole project, I realized that I needed to, to tackle the question of race, not from the way that people do it today, but by replicating the reading practices of mm-hmm. 18th century thinkers. And, and this means reversing the traditional historiographical relationship between you know, the, the question of slavery and uh, natural history and the travelogues, because people started with the travelogues. And so I spent a good two years reading through the 15th and 16th and 17th and 18th century travelogues. And one of the things that historians and literature specialists of a particular era do, which is a mistake, I believe, is that they limit themselves to the era in which they study, particularly when the people they study didn't limit themselves to those confines and those kind of constraints. And so the notion of Africa in the 15th and 16th and 17th century was very much pertinent for people thinking about Africa and Africans and blackness in the 18th century. So Indeed, I did start by reading through the Portuguese out, reading about the Portuguese outthrusts and the the travels of the various sailors who sailed under um, Prince Henry, the so-called navigator, mm-hmm. during the you know, 1450s. And this is Catamusto and many of these other sailors who were reporting back to the Portuguese authorities about these first contacts with Africa. And I, if I were to anticipate a question about you know what I learned about looking at the earlier contacts, is that they were very episodic, very fragmentary, and although there was certainly policy, and you might call it an ideology, of, a nascent ideology of empire at this point, uh, what's happening on the ground is very, very different from what you might uh, consider a, a post-colonial or a post-structuralist reading of these events, in that there is, there is no unified discourse at all in Africa at this point. Mm-hmm. This is an era way before race really crystallized in European thought, when there was a, it was an era of great syncretism with uh, ideas from antiquity, coexisting quite happily with ideas from medieval bestiaries, and also this belief in an elemental sameness that came through Christian thought and that there was a possibility of great political context with uh, the black peoples with whom sailors like Catamusto came into contact. I kind of found the same thing when I was studying European ethnographies of Muscovy, and that is in the, in the 16th century, which is really when Europeans discovered Russia, there were many different images of it and a stereotype hadn't exactly emerged. And they were also excited to find out that the Russians were Christians. They weren't very good Christians, that's what the Western Europeans said, but they were Christians, and that offered them an, an opportunity. And one of the things I appreciated about your book is the, is the way in which you portray that kind of flux of ideas. There are really a lot of different images. Can you talk a little bit about what the travel accounts say about Africans in Africa? Sure, and I, I should probably preface this by saying that the big question that everyone always has on the tip of his or her tongue is, is slavery. And slavery was seen by the travelers as either being as an accepted part of the experience, and it didn't have the, the same kind of ontological status as it, it, as it does later at all. And, and uh, there's a kind of a matter-of-fact bartering feel of what happens in some of these earlier early travelogues. Certainly there's a, a tradition of raiding the coast for people that is early on in some of these travels, and then later on they replace the, the raid with trade, and there's much more bartering and baiting going on, and that's where the anecdotal views of the early slave exchange take place. Mm-hmm. But your question is much more general. I think about kind of the flavor and the texture of these of these ethnographies and proto-ethnographies over time. And it's a complicated story because, you know, if, if I were to break down where the view of Africa comes comes from, I would say that there's a lot of you know, xenophobic and disdainful ethnographies that are produced or, you know, proto-ethnographies that are produced in the 16th and 17th century in particular, but those that are done in Africa portray Africans as being autonomous, albeit backward in their own world, in their own context. And what happens when the Caribbean comes online in a a very serious way in the 1650s, let's say, and I'm thinking primarily here, of course, about the English and the French, which I tend to study more than, say, the, the Dutch or the Portuguese. At that point, there is a proliferation of new texts which become available in Europe. And this vision of the African, which we could call the African of the Caribbean, supplants some of the more autonomous views of the black African ethnicities, which were produced within the context of of slavery very often, but still portray these Africans as being autonomous. And what I'm saying here is these labor-based typologies of black Africans 
which become very, very important in the overall interpretation of Africa, so that when voyagers and travelers, be they doctors or slavers or, or later on in the century explorers, they will be seeing these Africans through the prism of labor-based typologies and utility. So there's these really very different views of the African that be, they become synthesized by the beginning of the 18th century into a view of African who's somehow synonymous with slavery. It's interesting because there's a similar sort of thing that happens in the Russian context, and that is if you look at what the Ottoman Turks thought about Russians in the 16th century or then the, the Germans, I guess I would call them in the in the 16th century as well, they thought of them as slavish because slaves in the Ottoman Empire were all pretty much Russians. They were white, of course. Is it correct to say there was very little association between be- between blackness and slavery in the 16th century? What does blackness mean exactly in the 16th century? So I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. It's because I'm, I'm kind of juggling the concepts in my head. But what I would say is that the, the perfect harmony between blackness, accepted physiological inferiority, mm-hmm. a politics of servitude based on biology and heredity does not exist. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you can certainly point to various papal bulls and various views of non-Europeans and infidels as justification itself for slavery, particularly if these people were seen as unruly, which is one of the escape clauses that was kind of written into European contacts with non-Europeans, and that if you were not supposed to enslave people, you could, however, do so if they were unruly. So the early travelogues that you talk about deal with Africans in Africa. A little bit later, the information that the data gathering set in Paris, let's say, was getting came from a different context. It came from the Caribbean where blacks were in bondage. How did that impact the the image of the black African in French thought? Well, that's an interesting question. As I said before, the portrayal of Africans in the African travelogues, although quite denigrating quite often, show these Africans who were autonomous and building boats and doing things like that. And while really dismissive, particularly regarding religious practices, they did reflect the fact that there were not that many Europeans in West Africa. We imagine tens of thousands of Europeans in West Africa, but it certainly was not the case. Very often there was, you know, 10, 15, 20 people in an outpost, maybe 600 people in a very big area, but there weren't that many Europeans to begin with. And so the overall representation reflects the, the demographic side. And then we move to the Caribbean context. We're talking about tens of thousands of Europeans who are, of course, writing at the time of increased literacy and hundreds of thousands of, of Africans. So the, the basic ratio in both the French islands and the English islands was usually one to 10. And your question it has to do with how the impact of this really very different kind of plantation economy, what impact this had on the overall representation and understanding of the black African and European thought. And I think before you get to that question, you have to outline some of the major changes that take place in the 18th century. If we're talking about the transition from Mm -hmm. the 17th century when the the Caribbean plantations become very profitable and Barbados and Jamaica and then French islands become very profitable after that. But one of the major changes that takes place is that the interpretation of humankind shifts dramatically, and although it's something of an oversimplification to say that we move from an era of superstition to an era of science, that's not exactly (laughs) how it happens, Uh, certainly there is an increasingly material or naturalistic interpretation of the human. And as scientific methodology is marshaled, as as metaphysical explanations for humankind, including the the myth of Ham, are being abandoned, naturalists on the ground and explorers are thinking about the human in a very, very different way. And uh, what happens is that in in France, the existence of these colonies become, they become colonial laboratories on a certain level. And so there's a lot more dissection studies that are being done. There is a desire to think through the question of humankind from a perspective that is certainly certainly compatible with scripture, but that supplies a, a, a scientific explanation for the fact that there are very different kinds of humans living on the planet, say in the 1730s and 1740s. And as I said, the, the context of representation are very important. Uh, the mercantile thinkers, uh, there's a guy named Savary who writes about the African, who equates being African with being a slave. And this is certainly an idea that's produced in the Caribbean and that is overwriting the view of the African that was produced in these much more anecdotal travelogues that we see from the 17th century and even the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the other group that you talk about that kind of informs this discourse of 
uh, evolving blackness, and that is anatomists. The anatomists were, in fact, extremely important, and I have to say they've been neglected within the overall historiography pertaining to the question of race. I think that most people who have looked at the question of race tend to concentrate on the evolution of classification schemes. And so people looking back to the 17th century look for the antecedents of Linnaeus and Blumenbach, the the desire to to classify humankind. And there were certainly attempts to do so. And there were even even explanations of humankind in the 17th century that posited the the polygenesis of the human race, the, the, the possibility that humans were came into being in separate conceptual groups that really had no biological lineage. But these were heretical notions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the classification schemes were kind of, I think, pretty much throwaway attempts that were not taken terribly seriously. Although there is certainly a genealogy, I think that the classification emphasis is an overdetermined type view of what happens in race. And so if I were to reca- recapitulate what I'm talking about here, I said there are these proto-taxonomical schemes that we see regarding humans in the 17th century. And then we have Linnaeus in 1735, who does break down humans according to various categories. The African is described as the African as Niger. And then Buffon comes along in 1749 and produces his natural history, which does not produce a classification. And then later on, we have Blumenbach in 1775, Kant, Ms. Exelman. There's a lot of people who are all of a sudden putting forth scientific classification schemes in the later 18th century. And the overall shift is one from a botanical type understanding of humankind, that of the human variety, like a variety of flower, to a race. And the race is a a zoological term that starts being applied to human beings around 1750. It depends on the thinker, of course. These, These are all ideas that are coming into being at a certain point. The way I tell this is a little different. You've asked about the anatomists, and I'm giving this roundabout answer because what I think is that really the key figure, particularly in French thought, but in English thought as well, is Buffon. And I'm talking about Georges Leclerc, Comte de Buffon, who is the great French naturalist who presided at the King's Garden, the Jardin du Roi in Paris. It's now the the Jardin des Plantes. And he gathered all sorts of information from around the globe regarding different kinds of humans. Now, he worked on plants and animals as well. But we remember him, at least I remember him, for his work, (laughs) Proto-Anthropology. And his theory was that, and this is compatible with scripture, that there is a unified monogenetic origin for humankind, which is to say that there was a original prototype group of humans that degenerated in different climates as a function of both the temperature, the mores of that area, and also the food they ate. And this became a very, very important paradigm. And Buffon talks about varieties. And the part of the story where anatomy comes in is happens right about here. There had always been attempts to understand the specificity of blackness, and that really started in the 17th century, and there may have been even earlier attempts to do so. And most of these attempts to look at black skin were a means of dialoguing with classical, and by classical I mean dating all the way to Hippocrates, classical environmental or climate theory. In other words, you look at the skin and see the skin layers, and you take them apart, and you see that there's actually white skin underneath the uh, uh, black skin, the outer, uh, outer, outer layer of skin in an, Afri- in an African sample. And they would say, well, you see that this is there's actually an elemental whiteness that was uh, that existed before. And so there would always been these attempts at trying to decipher blackness. But after Buffon essentially ejected biblical explanations from the interpretation of the human, and he did so with the approval of the king, this is a huge, huge bestseller we're talking about, his Natural History, published in 1749. And after he had done this, it was an open invitation for anatomists to start thinking about this big paradigm of degeneration in a very, very new way. And so we see as early as the 1750s, a number of anatomists who are plunging into bodies and thinking about the specificity of degeneration. And it's really astonishing from our perspective now to look at these discoveries, which, and I don't like using the term pseudoscience, but we're really talking pseudoscience here because what they're finding is really spurious anatomical structures, which are in theory specific to Africans black brains, black sperm, and then there's somebody else named Dupas who kind of assimilates all these ideas and, and he puts forward a very, very different view of degeneration in 1768 that shows that degeneration, again, we're talking about something that's really invented, that degeneration is a really de- deleterious, 
event that makes the African into a particularly unfortunate example of humankind. And what we see going on here is a, is a complete hardening of climate theory. And this is something that, that uh, I think a lot of people have missed. As climate theory becomes hardened, we get much closer to a view of the human which is based on heredity. They have all these curious physiological structures and anatomical discoveries which infuse natural history from about 1765 on. And it's no coincidence that it's in 1775 that thinkers like Blumenbach and Kant will start creating these real categories. We have to remember Kant is a philosopher who works and was very much well-known for natural history. And for him to come up with a category, he needed real information. Blumenbach is the same. It falls into the same under the same rubric, I, I would say. And when he's talking about Meckel and Lacat and Depaul, he cites these people as a, a group of learned men whose authority cannot be questioned. Now, they saw these anatomical structures as real structures. And that's where we start seeing a definition of race come in that is really very much linked to these forgotten anatomists that uh, historians of science have neglected for one reason or another. So they were, in a sense, looking for evidence for the climatological theory and finding it. That's right. Well, many of them were looking for evidence of claiming Claiming they were finding it. Yes, I guess that's right. Yeah. As a friend of mine often says, you find in the islands what you take to the islands. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and in fact, curiously enough, both Blumenbach and Kant and Buffon are all monogenists, which is to say they believe in the unity of humankind and a single origin of humankind. And yet the information that they're, they're accessing and the classification schemes that they're putting forward open the door to much more pessimistic understandings of race that we see you know, 15 or 20 years down the road, or even, even earlier than that, in that the the classification schemes which are positing difference still recognize the elemental sameness of humankind. And the people who came after Kant and Blumenbach simply applied Occam's razor and eradicated the sameness part and said, well, if we have difference here in the categorization, clearly it might be time to start thinking again about the separate origins of humankind. And polygenesis does come into being not only because of this shift in natural history and anatomy, but for political reasons as well. Polygenesis is very much linked to the Haitian Revolution. So it seems to me that these people have grasped, Blumenbach and so on and so forth, have grasped the notion of adaptation. Certainly they didn't have any notion of evolution or how these changes were passed on, but they had grasped the idea that if you put people in a given context, like you put a plant in a given context, it will adapt and then they would say degenerate. Is that true? Were they thinking along those lines? Well, there is a, um, a tradition of what we might call transformationism. So transformist thought had certainly been present, and there's a real tradition of that is associated with the 18th century, with the materialists, with thinkers like Diderot as well, these Epicurean dynamic thinkers who, who saw humankind in general as a very, very fluid and dynamic concept. As a matter of fact, Buffon believed in something called racial reversibility, and that was a, a very non-essentialist understanding of humankind. If you, if you go to Africa as a white person, you turn black. If you go to England as a black person, you turn white. And one of the things that, that DePaul is going to say is that it's not as simple as that. The physiological damage that is done during degeneration is such that it's pretty much a one-way street. That's where we're starting to get very close to heredity. As race, and I think we could say without making a mistake here that race really does move. You asked about the skin. Race moves from the outside to the inside. Mm -hmm. As we're talking about these micro uh, and and, and speculative physiological uh, features that are particularly, that are associated with a particular group of people, at that point, race is moving to the inside. And so, to get back to your question about adaptation, well, certainly, one might think that as Africans move to the climate, and and Hippocrates said this as well, that as Africans move into these climates, their skin turns brown, so they're protected by the sun. They're burned by the sun as well. So there's a a notion of both providence, which helps people adapt. I mean, there's a kind of metaphysical explanation that God does this so that you would adapt. And this is, I'm thinking of some of the explanations of blackness that are circulating in the 17th and 18th century. And then also there are materialists who, who are, are employing climate theory as well. There are moments where the idea that there's an adaptation taking place. There's often 
the natural selection moment never happens, mm-hmm. which is to say that since there are no, uh, there's not an idea of a consistent heredity that's passed on from individual to individual that is replicated except for, you know, certain mutations. Even though there there's some people going this direction a little bit, notably Maupertuis, this is not an adaptation to be better suited to the climate uniquely because the whole notion of degeneration is that you move into these terrible climates and you get worse, in fact. You may change, but certainly not for the better. And during the 18th century, the Laplanders were seen as the most degenerate group of people. The Africans were seen as far superior to the Laplanders. There are other groups of people who were roundly criticized by people like Buffon as well. But the the more extreme the climate, the more degenerate you were. And in fact, there may be some adaptation going on there, but it's really more a question of being beaten down by the environment and, and, and uh, small, awful, tan, um, sickly, effeminate. So there's a whole kind of litany of terms that are associated with people who live in the wrong climates. And I guess this may be a silly question with, with an obvious answer, but they were degenerate in reference to what, given the fact that the Europeans didn't really know much about Adam or Eve? And what they looked like. Yeah, I mean, how, how did they how did they justify the fact that they were putting themselves basically at the, as the as the sort of standard by which all other peoples would be measured? Well, I think that Levi Strauss put it really nicely when he said that humanity ends at the borders of one's own ethnicity or something like that. And there's certainly been a baseline xenophobic uh, reaction to to human difference in many different parts of the, in all parts of the world. Probably, yeah, no, it's true. And what's different? here in the era I'm describing from the 17th and 18th century is that uh, people are overwriting, if I could say that, the the biblical narrative with a scientific narrative. I think there was a real assumption that the Adam and Eve were white, in fact, and and uh, a good example of that is is the so the very much the very scientific father of physical anthropology, Blumenbach, when he tells his story of monogenesis, he of course starts with the most beautiful people, the kind of people they think are the prototype group of people who are the Caucasians, who are coming from the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. And the Caucasus is, of course, the place where more or less the uh, Noah's Ark supposedly landed. And so there are these vestigial beliefs from Bible, which infuse scientific views of, of race in the 18th century, even one like Blumenbach's, which is really 50 years after the real shift towards naturalistic explanations of humankind have, have taken place. And that term Caucasian is still f- showing up on your census these days. So it's yep. had a long life. So what did they do with uh, anomalies? You know, I'm thinking of the, the cases of uh, northern Africans who are not, they are not, I, I don't know what the right term for this, negroid. They are not blacks. Mm-hmm. They look very different. What did the philosophers and these other folks say about them? Well, there are a lot of different explanations for the North Africans racially or biologically. Funk provided this gigantic color map of humankind, as I said, which had <laughs> tremendous, tremendous influence. And, and he really went around. Uh, went around the globe based on the correspondence uh, that he had with various people and also based on the you know hundreds of travel logs that you can imagine sitting on his shelves in the, the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. And so he, he, he was a, one of a, a you know, fantastic armchair naturalist. And moving through from Europe to West Africa, he, he was able to chart the subtle shifts in color. Uh, of course, there are huge exceptions, and the climate explanation doesn't do a lot to explain the fact that on, even though there's you know some mixing in Senegal, for example, their geographical breakdown that echoes a, a real breakdown in ethnicity that's taking place in between some of the areas in West Africa and North Africa. The North Africans were pretty easy to explain in the fact that their skin was, was a little darker and darker than European skin in, in, in general and certainly much lighter than skin from the, the, the Swedes and then went along. Mm-hmm. The problem for Buffon came when they came across populations of anomalies. And you were talking about anomalies a little bit before. And one of the big, big anomalies was the existence of albino populations throughout the globe. And yeah, I was, I was hoping you would talk about this. Very interesting. <laughs> the albino story is, again, a, an example, I suspect, of where my interest in human anomalies really does overlap with how I got into this whole subject. The story of the albino is a fascinating and untold part of the story of race in the 18th century. First, I should say the albino didn't exist. The albino is, a, is for us, it's not a, a, a terrific term. It's, it's the real term for albino. Albinism is hypopigmentation. In the 16th century, what there was was the phenomenon of the white Negro. The white Negro for Buffon was the proof that there was a prototype race of whites to which occasionally the child of a black couple would revert, which is to say that 
when black parents had a white child. This was first proof that these two races, these two groups of people were linked. They had a shared biological lineage way, way back in time at some point. But for Buffon, this was proof that the white race was the primitive race, the original race to which these, these children reverted at some point in their lives. And of course, this becomes the foundation for this gigantic enterprise of creating a genealogy of, of humankind. And later on in the natural history, when he discovers that, in fact, the albinos are everywhere, even in France, the whole foundation for his argument that the white race was a prototype race, which overlaps with Adam and Eve, is completely debunked, but he never looked at it, he never went back, because to do so would have been to rewrite the entire edifice of his new view of humankind. And no one really picked up on this in the 18th century, which is really quite funny. Yep. That was his argument, and he stuck to it. That's right, he stuck to it. (laughs) Don't let the facts get in the way of your argument, as a friend of mine says. So let's try to tie all of this together and connect it to the history of slavery and thoughts about slavery. So we've talked about ethnographers who brought data back from Africa about Africans, black Africans. And then we talked about anatomists who attempted to find the origins of that blackness in the black body. And finally, we talked about people like Buffon, these naturalists who sort of synthesize all this information. How does all this relate to the discourse concerning slavery as it was evolving in the 18th century? I think that I've got to engage in a little bit of periodization. I hope you'll okay, that's fine. For, Historians yeah. love that stuff. What's fascinating about the overall question of slavery and something that seems so hard for us to believe right now is that there is a credible myopia, I think, regarding the whole question up, up until about, particularly in France, until about 1750, 1760, which is to say that if you think about the encyclopedia, which comes a little later, there's no representation of the technology of slavery, although the encyclopedia, this gigantic compendium of knowledge, is in theory designed to diffuse all knowledge and also the technology behind the manufacture and the arts in the 18th century, there's a huge ellipsis there. We just didn't talk about it very much. And so people start thinking about it a little later. Although there are moments of where people are, are of course, writing about slavery before 1750, it is done, as I was saying earlier, in a very matter-of-fact way. And the justification of this mercantile enterprise was, was self-evident to so many people. And it was a very heretical idea to to question it for a long time. This era of indifference then moves into a time where we start having these isolated critiques of slavery. And in the French context, you can think maybe of the famous passage from Candide by Voltaire, where there's the dying Negro of Suriname who's lying down on the ground with his leg cut off, and uh-huh. et cetera. And he says it's at this price that you're eating sugar. sugar. And, and this is the 1750s, even earlier than that, Elvisius, a famous philosophe, says some similar things about lead-tainted sugar. And there's lots of literary uh, accusations. And particularly, the philosophe took great pleasure in deriding the, the metaphysical justifications of slavery that I alluded to earlier, the idea that you lose your, your physical liberty, but you gain you know, eternal salvation. They lambasted that. So the, the relationship, you've asked about the relationship between natural history and slavery, as first slavery becomes a thing that people are talking about much more. Philosophes are much more interested in questions of physical, uh, of spiritual causality, and, you know, uh, is there a God in in deism, things like that, in in the 1740s and 1750s. But by 1760, you know, this becomes something of a cause. And as that becomes a cause, and as the metaphysical justifications for slavery are being attacked increasingly by a lot of people, then the new generation pro-slavery thinkers looks to new justification. This is quite schematic, but certainly you can see that there's a, a confluence of a lot of things here. The increasing materialization of the African, the materiality of blackness, those physiological structures that I alluded to, and then these pro-slavery thinkers who have had the metaphysical justification of slavery denied to them. Mm-hmm. They look to natural history as a justification of slavery. So then we have, we think about it, the physiological justifications. We have classification schemes coming out of Germany. And we have this very powerful natural history, which is not necessarily conceived of as an anti-black type idea, although certainly it would function and be seen as such by us now. But pro-slavery thinkers grabbed hold of the thought of someone like De Paul, the, the uh, uh, Dutch geographer I talked about, and will grab that idea and repackage it in um, a pro-slavery justification or a justification of slavery that 
is implicitly refuting the philosophical tendency to humanize the African. So there's this kind of humanization, dehumanization battle that starts taking place much more acutely. And I suppose you could say that the debate on slavery shifts from kind of the mercantile justification and the metaphysical justification and the uh, traditional justification that this is just African practice and Europeans are just going there and, and participating in African, in African society and customs. And as those, those ideas don't work as well, as the debate shifts, all of a sudden natural history becomes the, the forum where these things are discussed and natural history becomes a real battleground and the black body becomes a battleground by it pits the pro-slavery thinkers against some of the anti-slavery thinkers who start trying to rewrite the African as well. There's a, a very famous Quaker named Anthony Benizé who came from a Huguenot family who put forward a very, very positive view of the African, which is impl- implicit uh, refutation of much of what was written, written about the African coming from the Caribbean. He may have been the first person, this is the 1760s, he's writing in Philadelphia, he may be the first person to understand that to put forward a coherent anti-slavery argument needed a coherent picture of the African. One of the things that is, again, is very strange for us looking back at the 18th century is that many anti-slavery thinkers could be considered anti-black thinkers at the same time or proto-racists. There was a seeming compartmentalization of what we might call rights discourse and natural history discourse. Again, looking at the encyclopedia, looking at another famous text, which the History of the Two Indies was a monumental bestseller during the 18th century, published in 1770 and a couple other editions. Looking at these compendiums of knowledge, you can see, again, this curious syncretism where there might be three or four paragraphs which are very anti-slavery, preceded by three or four pages of incredible proto-race science that seems to justify the existence of slavery. And so, Looking back again at these texts, it's very, very difficult for students to parse, and I think it's very difficult for uh, specialists of the 18th century to parse, and, and that's why the 18th century has become such a battleground, uh, I think, uh, pitting the apologists of the Enlightenment against those who would really like to lambast the entire era. I, I want to ask you about one uh, text in particular, and it comes from, I think it comes from, I don't know, if it comes from Spirit of the Laws, but it's, it's about one of my favorite thinkers, Montesquieu. I, I remember reading Montesquieu in uh, college, and it sort of rocked my world, as we say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do remember these, uh, these, these he's a big climatologist, that people are the way they are because of the climate. But on the other hand, you point out that he writes in an anti-slavery track. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that text and what it tells us about the way the, the philosophes thought about these things? Okay, so let me set the stage here a little bit. Montesquieu writes a spirit of the laws in 1748. This is a fundamental Enlightenment text, which is, has a huge, huge uh, effect, both in France, of course, uh, in England, and in the United States. And, and still worth reading. So Montesquieu becomes the, the founder of anti-slavery thought. And I think that's, that's really pretty much the case. However, the way he um, tackles the, the, the question of slavery is through irony. And Montesquieu, of course, who wrote the Persian letters earlier in the century, was known as having a very kind of a biting pen, and he was very, very clever. And in talking about slavery, he says, and I pulled the passage here so I can read it, not the whole thing, but a couple of examples, he has nine points that he makes, and he takes on the voice of a pro-slavery thinker. And he says, if I were to oblige to defend the right that we have to enslave Africans, here's what I would say. And here's number one. The peoples of Europe, having exterminated those of the Americas, were obliged to make slaves of the Africans in order to clear so much land. <laughs> Two, sugar would be too costly to produce it. We're not cultivated by slaves. And three, these slaves are black from head to toe, and they have such flat noses that it is impossible, almost impossible to pity them. And four, it is hardly to be believed that God, who is such a wise being, should place such a soul, especially a black soul, in so... <laughs> so you're laughing very much like an 18th century person. Yeah, I am. <laughs> irony is often lost on, on um, students today because uh, what he's done is trotted out a lot of horrific stereotypes uh, regarding Africans as a justification of the slave trade. And we, we understand this by the time we get to the last point where he says, weak minds exaggerate too much the injustice done to Africans. For were this truly the case, surely the princes of Europe who spend their time negotiating so many useless treaties, would have agreed to a general convention 
on behalf of mercy and compassion. Mm-hmm. And so the, the philosophical technique here is, is uh, that of modus tollens, which is to say that what is being voiced here is actually the direct opposite of what the thinker him, himself, in this case, actually thinks. And so this really is refutation of slavery and the justification of slavery. At the same time, what's not questioned here, and this is important, I think, is the fact that these ideas regarding Africans are not refuted in and of themselves. What's being lambasted is that these views of Africans, black Africans, dark Africans, potentially soulless Africans, Montesquieu doesn't believe that, but these ideas would be marshaled in the service of justification of slavery. For Mm -hmm. Montesquieu, there really was no justification of slavery in the abstract. The problem comes later on, later on the century, indeed, when people look back at this and say, you know, slavery, and, and this is when you can feel the sensibility shifting in the 1770s or so, they say Montesquieu may have started this anti-slavery movement, but the way he did it was really kind of distasteful. You know, you shouldn't make fun of something that's so serious. And so the, you know, later on in the 18th century, he's lambasted for that. But what 18th century thinkers missed was another aspect of his thought regarding slavery. And that, that comes a little later in the spirit of the laws when he's, he's talking about a climate. He's really talking about breakdown of the world's peoples based on climate. And here he grapples with the problem of slavery in a very different way. So if he is, he's talked about African chattel slavery in this portion I just read, read to you. And later on, he's talking about the people living in the tropics and the very dark tropics who suffer from the sun. And, and he enumerates some of the physiological damage which is done to them, which is in many ways very reminiscent of some of the things that, that were said about Africans 10 or 15 years later. Mm-hmm. But this physiological damage, according to Montesquieu, might explain, if not justify, the existence of slavery. And here he's essentially creating a, a, a moment of great relativism, and he's known as a relativist after all, a moment of great relativism where uh, Africans are seen as, well, potentially it might be better for them to be enslaved. Now, again, Montesquieu, having written this, recants uh, in, a, in one of the paragraphs uh, that, that follows he, he doesn't like the idea that, in fact, these physiological determinants might justify the idea of slavery, but he certainly says that it does kind of make sense. It, it's a reasonable thing to exist. It's a, one of the curious paradoxes of the Enlightenment, and uh, it's testament to the fact that there is this great syncretism that characterizes what happens in, in some of the, you know, the, the thought systems of some of, our, uh, you know, some of the major thinkers of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit, and we're about out of time here, so I want to make sure this question is a, a good one. What is the legacy of the syncretism, which is a good word for it? I, I guess on a less positive gloss, it would just be called kind of confusion. They don't really know what to think about it. They're trying to grapple with an, uh, a lot of different kinds of information, and they can't really, especially the more sensitive of them, like Montesquieu, don't really know where to come down. What, what is this, the legacy of of the ethnographic and the anatomical and the naturalistic, and then finally these philosophes. What is, what is the legacy of them for the 19th century? Like any good question, this is a, one that has many different parts and many different possible answers. But we might want to take Buffon as an example. And that Buffon, as I said, for this sometimes quite optimistic and dynamic view of race theory that you could certainly link up to some of the dynamism evident in, in Darwin, for example, and also uh, his monogenetic beliefs were embraced by many, in fact, all of the anti-slavery thinkers of the 18th century and the 19th century. And so this belief in an elemental human sameness, which is the foundation of Buffon's thought, allows for anti-slavery thinkers to make the argument that everyone is human and everyone shares the same aptitudes Everyone shares the same capabilities and ability to become more perfect uh, over time. At the same time, Buffon's thought, it does lead to a great deal of toxic speculation regarding corporeal specificity of different groups. And so his genealogy is double, if not triple, and mm-hmm. the things that happen with Buffon as well. As I said, on the one hand, a very optimistic view of race, which then gets rewritten by other people. And on the other hand, this, this view that inspires a generation of anatomists and naturalists to, to really rethink this question of degeneration. And in fact, he may have, you know, inadvertently incited people to push a much more heredity-based view of humankind by the 1770s. Of course, that's not his fault. We can't attribute yep. agency to him in that respect. But 
I think this era of confusion or this era of inconsistency is, is uh, it's, it's difficult to, to find one legacy. I think that very often, as I've said in the, the, uh, the epilogue, or the conclusion rather, people are trying to come to, to distill or to put forward a, a pretty one-sided legacy uh, view. And I really have rejected the, the legacy-driven narrative, historical narrative, and tried to show some of the complexity of the different people and the fact that very often what someone thought in a particular context of, of a novel, for example, would be very different from what uh, he or sometimes she would say in natural history. The reason I ask the question is because you see in the 19th century, at least I see, a certain hardening of some of these positions and less syncretism. So I'm thinking about Chamberlain in the, in the German context and then Gobineau in the French context. So what we're talking about here then is a, is a different kind of legacy. I'm, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. The yeah, question. no, it's okay. So, yes, the, the legacy of these, this thought, particularly the, the fact that you know, there's the hardening of climate theory. And as I said, um, there's an increasing, increasing amount of poly, polygenesis uh, type thought that starts occurring around the end of the century. And as, and as I alluded to very early in the, in, the, in the program, when Haiti erupts into revolt in 1791, 1792, this politics of humanization that we see overlapping with monogenesis, for example, gets called into question. And by the end of the century, when Napoleon comes back into power, remember Napoleon is very, very uh, kind of uh, pro-empire and ends up reinstating slavery, which was temporarily abolished in 1749. He reestablishes slavery in, in 1802 in Guadeloupe, Martinique, and then tries to do, to do the same thing, and I'm simplifying here, uh, quite a bit in 1802 in, in Saint-Domingue as well. And 50,000 troops die there. It becomes a huge kind of Vietnam for France at that point. The loss of Saint-Domingue, I think, has been alighted from, from history in a way that really prevents us from understanding the shock that, that something like this had and the effect that this had on the overall European consciousness, particularly French consciousness. And the anti-black thought that uh, comes out after uh, 1804, 1805, is, is absolutely astonishing. And polygenesis really has become much more, more prevalent and endorsed than it had been before. I think that the historian Colin Kidd said that the biblical moorings of humankind had become completely unhitched and naturalists were, were free to speculate on this very scientific view and zoological view of the human. And clearly, Gobineau is a good example. Gobineau represents in the French context, and Gobineau was, was terribly important in France initially, but then became very important in the United States because his thought was, was endorsed by uh, American polygenists. Gobineau is famous for associating race with destiny, and that's the final and the kind of the culmination of race theory. The high era of race theory, and then the awful race theory, is when there's an absolute synthesis between destiny and biology, mm -hmm. and when there's no escaping that. And the justification of slavery then becomes very easy at that point because you're, you are asserting fundamental alterity and difference. Cognitively, there's cognitive studies. There's you know, phrenology. There's just a whole host of different things, uh, all the craniology that's going on in the early 19th century. All this kind of culmination of physical anthropology, which is being marshaled for very ideological reasons, which is to say that the, the profound dehumanization of the African is part of the justification of the slave trade and also the anger for the the great loss of Saint-Domingue. I'll just put it very plainly. I, I sort of blame misreadings of Darwin for a lot of this. Because once they got the Darwinian mechanism, then if they were desirous of, of claiming racial differences were uh, essential, they had a mechanism for it. They could, they could fall back on Darwin and say, well, look, this has evolved, that these different forms of humans uh, have different characteristics as a result of natural selection. Mm -hmm. um, now, now that is, Darwin was really ambivalent along those lines. He didn't rule out that possibility. He did rule out polygenism, but he leaves the door open for them. And then you see all these horrible things, uh, Gobineau and Chamberlain and so on and so forth, who are really essentializing human difference along lots of different lines that, that have to do with blackness and Slavness and Germanness and Englishness and all these kinds of things that are, that are truly horrible. I, you know, and again, I guess, I guess I would also say, having read your book, I don't really think that the philosophers and, and these uh, ethnographers and anatomists are, are really to blame for any of this. I don't, they come across in your book, and I think this is one of the real strengths of it, as, 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 as really much subtler thinkers than the people that followed them. They, they really uh, they rise in my estimation every time I read about them. And, and you're talking to someone who, you know, Montesquieu is one of my favorite, uh, sort of one of my favorite authors. So, yeah, they, they rise in my estimation. They really didn't know what to think about these things, and, and they said so. But later on, people were extraordinarily sure and with deadly consequences. 
we have run out of time. It's been fascinating talking to you about this book, Andy. Before we, before we end the interview, though, I want to ask you the traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? So what I'm going to work on next, as I said, I've, as I said earlier in the program, I'm deaning right now. So <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, dean-related activities to take care of. At the same time, I do have some, some projects in the back burner. I have been thinking a lot about something I call the Colonial Laboratory, and that would be a departure from, to a certain degree from what I've done before. You know, I, I, my, this, this book, The Anatomy, Anatomy of Blackness, really has to do with the processing of travelogues and natural history, mostly within the European context. But there's a, an enormous amount of work to be done on what took place on the ground in the uh, colonial context in, in the area of the life sciences. There was a really high-functioning and very sophisticated scientific academy in Saint-Domingue, which is the richest colony in the world in the 18th century. And there were a lot of other anatomists who did, did work in Vienna and things like this, and places like this, where they, they were actually gathering material and sending it back. And so I might think a little bit more about you know, decentering the narrative I've, I've come up with. I actually have a dream to write a trade book as well on something that would, might be called the, a short history of the human. And this would actually bring paleoanthropology and ge- uh, genetic science into play with the history of the kind of the history of race science that I've, we've been talking about today. And I think it's really important because you know, high school kids are not, and even I think adults don't really think about the, the fact that there was a prototype group of people, mm-hmm. uh, presumably black people, definitely black people living in Eastern Africa 150,000 years ago. And that the, this, the Buffonian story on a certain level is, a, is not too far from the truth, except that, of course, the degeneration took place in the opposite direction as, as uh, people moved north, for example, they degenerated and became white so they could get vitamin D through their skin. So mm-hmm. I think it would be really wonderful to, to, to retell that story in, in a way that would be accessible and then, and then move actually from, from the, the period of time when from you know, 50,000 years ago, 25,000 years ago, and, and, and move through to the, the very, very recent invention of the question of race. Mm-hmm. I think that it, we're, you're a, a historian who's, who is a, a deep file who knows this stuff very well, but I think that even the most educated People these days have a very hard idea grasping what race is mm-hmm. and when it came into being. And, and, and maybe a, a book that would be destined for a larger public would be the next step. Yeah, it's funny because I was just telling my students, I repeat this a lot. I tell them, everything exists in time. No exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there is nothing written on the stars. Everything exists in time, including the notion of race. And I want to thank you very much for telling us a lot more about the history of blackness. We've been talking to Andy Curran about his wonderful book, The Anatomy of Blackness, Science and Slavery in an Age of Enlightenment. Uh, Andy, thanks very much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Marshall. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Curran about his new book, The Anatomy of Blackness, Science and Slavery in the Age of Enlightenment. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.